great. It is warming up. It's nice outside. I'm so glad you guys made it. Welcome to our Morris Campus 8.30 service. We've only got four of these left, and then we'll actually have our own Morris Campus service actually in Morris for a change. And so we are super excited about that. It is prime time to jump in. So uh, we do have that table out there, and if you've been thinking about uh, jumping in or if you're just interested in all the information, the vision of the campus, ways you could serve, uh, stop by. If you're home watching, you're like, oh, man, I want to get in on that. Just uh, reach out to me. Uh, you can find me online, send me an email, whatever's easiest, and uh, we'd love to get you involved and excited about what's going on because uh, the weekend after Morris, we're going to be out there and figuring out how to do church in a school. And we need your help, and we're really excited about that. We're going to continue with our series called Living Hope, and today we're going to look at a passage uh, of Scripture where Jesus is teaching, and really it's the heart of why we're even planting a campus, okay? We're calling this week Hope for the Homecoming. The whole reason that we're going to Morris is to start a campus that we believe will help us reach more people for Jesus. We've been saying it like this, to help people in and around Morris who don't yet have a church or aren't living hope in Jesus Christ to come and find freedom and forgiveness and family through the Mission Bible Church. And we're so excited to do that. This, this passage is really the heart, of the, the, the idea of people coming home and putting their faith in Jesus is what we're all about. So if you've brought a Bible or a device with a Bible on it, open up to Luke chapter 15. And we're going to look at um, some stories, specifically one story that you've probably heard, but I want to read it together. I'd love for you to see it as we read it. So please open up your Bible and follow along. And as you do, I want to just catch you up to where we're at in the story. If you, if you go back to Luke 13 and 14, over two chapters, Jesus issues several warnings to everyone who could hear him. He tells stories. He, he's straight up with his warnings. He's showing how urgent it is that people need to find Jesus, that they need to come home to their Savior. And here's a couple of things he says throughout 13 and 14. In one point, he specifically says twice, he says, Unless you repent, you will perish, right? Like, by the time we get to chapter 13, Jesus is done beating around the bush. He's just telling everybody he knows, you need to repent. You are doomed in your sin, but I can save you. Unless you repent, you will perish. He's trying to teach the urgency of salvation for everyone. At first to us, and then to everyone we know. And he says, he tells this story about a fig tree. And he says, the owner of this fig tree goes every year to get some fruit, and he gets ticked because there's no fruit. And he says, I'm going to cut this tree down. And his gardener says, give me one year, one last try. Uh, I'll fertilize it, I'll take extra good care of it, and uh, we'll see if it produces fruit. If not, then we'll cut it down. What he's saying is, to my followers, I need you to produce fruit. I'm waiting for you, I'm checking on you, I'm looking for fruit. And there's other passages where Jesus says he's going to prune, right? Like the, the branches that don't produce fruit will be cut off and thrown away. And so he's telling us the urgency of not only finding salvation, but bringing salvation to others. Uh, he says this, make every effort to enter the narrow door because many will try to enter and not be able to. He's teaching the crowd because someone says, well, every, not everyone's going to be saved, right? He's like, no, unfortunately, we're going to do everything we can to tell people that they need a Savior, to repent, but the door's narrow. And, and do everything you can for yourself to get following me for real and to bring everybody you can with you because not everyone will be saved. This is urgent. This is a big deal. And then he tells a story about a great banquet. 
right? This guy sends these invitations out, and then it says when the day of the party comes, they all start making up excuses to not come, and so he tells his servants, go find anyone on the street, blind, poor, beggars, whatever they are, lame, bring them in. I'm going to fill this banquet one way or the other. And he says, okay, they all showed up, and there's still a few spots left. He's like, go to the countryside, tell everyone that you can find to come. And then he says, he ends the story with this, none of those who were first invited will get a taste of my banquet. And he's just over and over communicating this urgency that there is eternal life and our souls will live forever and the door is narrow, but we need to do whatever we can to put our faith in Jesus and to help others put their faith in Jesus because at the end of the day, that's the only thing that matters. For two chapters, he just goes on and on about how urgent it is. And then we get to Luke chapter 15. So if you um, got your Bible open to Luke 15, we're gonna, he starts with, the whole chapter is just three stories. He tells a story of a lost sheep he tells a story of a lost coin, and then he tells a, a little longer, very famous story about a lost son. Or if you grew up in church, you might call him the prodigal son. But the lost sheep is this dude that's got 100 sheep. He loses one, or one wanders off, whatever happens, and it says he'll leave the 99 to go fetch the one, and when he comes back, he'll throw a party. And Jesus ends the story by saying, in the same way, heaven rejoices every time even one sinner puts their faith in Jesus. Then he tells a story about this lady that has 10 coins, and she loses one, and these coins are very valuable. So it says she'll turn her house upside down and sweep it out, and you know, they had like um, probably dirt floors. So if you lost a dirty coin on a dirt floor, It'd be hard to find. They don't have a lot of, you know, light and things like that. And so she'll do whatever it takes to search for that coin. But once she finds it, she'll throw a party with her friends. And he says in the same way, he reiterates, in the same way, the angels in heaven rejoice every time even one sinner comes to faith. So he spends two chapters saying how urgent it is that we come to put our faith in Jesus and that we do whatever we can to help other people do that. And then he tells these three stories back to back to back about how much heaven celebrates, how big of a deal every time someone puts their faith in Jesus. And then we get to the most popular. And uh, we start in verse 11. To illustrate the point even further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. So, I mean, the, the farmer has like 100 sheep. Um, the lady has 10 coins. This guy has two sons. So even more valuable, right? Like people versus, you know, expensive items or, or, or animals. He's got two sons. Verse 12, the younger son told his father, I want to share, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons, which is very unusual. Basically, what he says is, I wish you were dead, I want your money now. This is what he says. This is insulting to like the highest degree. And the dad actually does it, okay? Verse 13, a few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. So he wishes his dad was dead, he takes his stuff, and then he leaves the family. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. About that time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him out to the fields to feed the pigs. Now, in Jesus' culture, he's talking to a Jewish audience. Like, you don't associate with pigs. You definitely don't hang out with pigs and feed pigs. So, like, this is not only, you know, just a dirty not very fun job. To a Jewish person, this is like, you shouldn't even do this job. But he's saying this is how despicable this kid has become, how desperate and helpless this kid has come. He's feeding the pigs. Verse 16, the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and I'm here dying of hunger. Verse 18, I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned 
against both heaven and you. And I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as your hired servant. So he's feeding these pigs. He's literally starving. And he's like, wait a minute. My dad hires guys. They work. He pays them. And they have plenty of food. I, I, I'm, I, you know, I told him I wished he was dead. I moved away. I wasted my money. I'll go back and see if I can just get hired on. I, I know I don't deserve to be his son. I, I'm not part of the family. I, I kind of rejected him and all, but if he could, it's a, it's a better job than I got. I'll just, you know, I'll grovel at his feet for a job. Verse 20, so he returned home to his father. And this is the part that we love about this story. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Isn't that awesome? He's like, I'm... I'm not really your son anymore, but I'll just, I'm seeing if I can get a job interview, right? And somehow, for some reason, even though it's been a while, while he's still a long way off, his father's on the lookout. See, his father had hope for the homecoming. His father never gave up hope that, that his son would still be his son. He wasn't going to write him off. He wasn't going to give up hope. I don't know what time of the day he looked or how far, you know, I don't know if he had binoculars or what, but he's looking for his son to come home because he never lost hope. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. Now, I would think, I'll let the son get here. You know, I'm not going to go all the way out there. We're walking back this way anyways. I'll save my steps, you know. And, and I don't know if I'd be filled with love or compassion at this point. But if I was just nice enough to let you spend the night, I'd feel pretty good about myself. But this dad, who has hope for a homecoming, runs to his son. It says he embraced him and he kissed him. And his son said, he gave him the speech he planned, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Now, I looked up a couple, like, what's the deal? Like, this robe would uh, set you apart from just regular folk. This is a fine robe. Like, first of all, he needed, you know, better clothes because he's probably, you know, scrappy, coming home dirty and everything else. So he's like, I care about you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to show you love. And I'm going to honor you with this fine robe. The ring on his finger would be a symbol of authority, that he's part of the family, and he has authority as a son of this father who runs this estate. And so this is a big step, that not only do I still love you, but I'm going to give you the family's authority back. Put that ring on his finger. And then the sandals thing, I always forget this part, because then they throw a party, and I remember about the fatted calf, because like, mmm, like a fatty ribeye, like I want, that is, I love that party, okay? But the sandals for his feet, I was reading about how servants were probably barefoot, didn't have or were given or maybe even afford sandals, but sons would wear sandals because they had more money. And it was like this, this differentiation that my son ain't going around barefoot. Get him some sandals because he's my son. How dare you say you'll be my servant? You will always be my son. I love this. Verse 23, and he says to his servants, and kill the calf that we've been fattening. Mm. Yeah, we must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And the party began. Remember, Jesus said in the first two stories, I tell you the truth, just like that rejoicing, there is a party in heaven. The angels rejoice. We throw a huge celebration every time one person comes to faith because he spent two chapters saying how big of a deal it is that we find salvation and that we bring salvation to others. And then, then, and then you can hear like the music in the background kind of turn to that eerie, like something's going to happen, you know, like the villain enters, right? Dun, dun, dun. Meanwhile, verse 25, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard the music and the dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fatted calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry, and he wouldn't go in. 
His father came out and begged him, but he replied to his dad, All these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing that you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet this son of yours, he, he won't even call him his brother, right? Because he, he swore off the family. He, he basically said to his family, I wish you were dead, give me your money. So this brother accepted that invitation. And he says, this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes and you celebrate by killing the fatted calf? And his father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed with me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day. Because your brother, again, he doesn't say my son. He's, he's letting him know your brother was dead and he's come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. This is a powerful story. Where Jesus gets everybody's emotions going with the pigs and the family dynamics and the homecoming. But uh, we see different characters in this. First, we see the father's love, that the father on the lookout running to embrace and celebrate the sonship of his son. He never gave up hope for the homecoming. We see the son coming back, realizing what he's done, groveling at his father's feet, saying, I don't deserve your love, I don't deserve your sonship, but yeah, I just need a job. And his dad says, that's not good enough. That's not, you'll always be my son. And then we see the older brother. And the older brother is interesting, because the older brother looks really good on the outside, but we see that he's got a bad heart. And as, as believers, as followers in Jesus, we can do good things and have a bad heart. We can look really good to other people, but have a bad heart, where maybe we become bitter or judgmental. We see him judging his little brother. We see him feeling proud about who he is, what he's done. We see him bitter against the father. You know, all this time he says, I've slaved for you. I just think it's interesting the, the translation, you know, puts that word in there because the one son says, let me be your slave. He says, go get sandals because he's my son. The other son who never left says, I've slaved for you. I've earned your affection. I got something coming to me. And we can serve God like this. Sometimes maybe not you know, maybe it's subconscious. Maybe we don't mean it, but in our minds somewhere we start to think, well, if I go to church, if I give to church, if I serve at church, if I'm kind to people, if I help little old ladies across the street, whatever it is, like w when I do this, then surely God will be there when I need him. God will give me what I need. And we see that attitude with the son. And the dad's like, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> Everything I have is yours which is probably pretty literal because if he split the estate and the son took half and wasted it, the other half is his. Like literally, this is all yours someday. You know, you should have just taken a goat. But uh, he says, I've slaved for you. He seems to have an attitude problem. He seems to be trying to earn the father's love. He seems to be in it for what he can get back from the father. And he's disappointed and bitter about what he gets versus what the brother gets. And we too can do good deeds and, and even be obedient, but have a bitter heart. And as we talk about serving and, and, and following God, we, it should be our joy to serve and to follow God, to, to love him, to obey him, to, to serve him, to serve other people, to, to serve on a team at church. I always talk about when we have all these volunteers, like this, this church doesn't work without volunteers. There was volunteers here early, you know, getting ready for you to park your cars, getting ready for you to check your kids in, making coffee, you know, doing all these things, putting these uh, cards that we're going to use in a minute on your chair. Like this church all week long runs on volunteers. And in, in about five weeks, we'll have two campuses that run 
on, on volunteers. And, and I always talk to our, our volunteer teams and I say, listen, I know that, you know, on a given week, you might just be here because you said you'd be here, right? Like, and that's good enough. Like, it's eight o'clock, I'm supposed to be there. Uh, I'm tired, you know, or like, I always ran youth groups. So it was like on a, on a weekday night, you probably rush home from work and you got kids and you're trying to get dinner and get to church on time. And I would tell my leaders, hey, if you're just here because you said you would, I'll take it. You know, like that's admirable. That's really good. And in some weeks you're just tired. In some weeks you're just busy. In some weeks that's what you've got. If, if every week all we ever do is serve because we're supposed to, I think we're missing out. If, if you serve God and honor God because that's what good Christians do and, and we're supposed to, I think that's good. I think that's admirable. I think God can even work through that. But you're missing out on the joy that comes from serving with an attitude that says, I love you and I want to serve you. You know, we serve God because he deserves it. Have you ever said to someone, you deserve it, right? Like you want to get them something nice or, or you want to do something nice for them and you say, oh, you deserve it. Like if my kids would tell my wife, don't do the dishes, mom. You were cooking all day. You know, you sit there, we'll do the dishes. You deserve it, right? It's not, uh, I'm not doing it because I have to. I'm doing it because you deserve it. Like you, like it's my joy to serve you in this way. And what if that was our heart to God? as we obeyed him and followed him and shared our faith and, and served him in all the ways that we can serve, that we wouldn't, you know, if we do it because we're supposed to, yeah, that's a good start. That really is good. But if it gets to our heart to where we say, it's my joy to honor you by following you, obeying you, sharing my faith, um, serving in all these different ways. We don't serve to butter God up. <laughs> we don't just serve to get back what we think we deserve. And we shouldn't compare ourselves to others. You know, this, this older son compares himself with the younger one. He squandered his money. He's a fool. You know, he was dead to us. And, and, and I've been here the whole time. And I've never refused to do anything. And I've done all these good things, but I have a bitter heart. And the dad's like, I just want you to come to the party. Because we're all family here. And when we start comparing ourselves to others, we start to either feel good about ourselves, and you can always find someone who's not as good, not as attractive, not as smart, whatever. And, and, and you start to pump yourself up, and, and he's like, no, don't compare yourself to others. Serve me because you love me. Serve me because it's your joy. And there's another level of honoring and following and serving God that is a heart of joy and not just what we're supposed to do. Both of the brothers are sons. Both of the brothers are loved by their dad. He doesn't want either one to be a servant. He wants them to be his son. In the same way, none of us deserve eternal life. None of us deserve God's grace. None of us deserve forgiveness of our sins. We couldn't earn it. There's nothing we can do to make that up to God. He, he doesn't forgive anybody because of who they are or what they will do someday. He just loves us because he calls us his sons and his daughters. And that's such a powerful uh, thing that we see in this story. The older brother had lost the hope for the homecoming. He wasn't looking for his brother. And actually, when his brother showed up, he wished he wouldn't have. How dare you come back? You said you wish we were dead. How dare you come back after you wasted half of dad's estate? How dare you show up and accept a gift, a party, a robe, whatever it is? Like, he not only gave up hope for his brother, he wished he would have never came back at all. And I was thinking about the way that we can serve God or even share our faith because for me, for a long time, the, 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 if I obeyed God and if I actually like shared my faith with someone or invited someone to church, I was doing it because I was supposed to. And, and you know, okay, the, the youth pastor told me I'm supposed to read my Bible, so I read my Bible. Get off my back, right? Like the youth pastor told me to bring someone to youth group next week, so I invited my friends and, and I, I did my thing. Like check the box. I, I did what I was supposed to. And I think that God 
can work with that. And I think he would look at that and say, thank you for trying to honor me. But I think he wants to work past just our, our mind that says this is what I'm supposed to do and get to our heart and say this is what I get to do. You know the difference between have to and, and get to? In our house, we catch each other all the time. I catch my kids, and they catch me. And we'll say, I have to do this. I don't, you get to do that, right? Like, you get to do that. Because it's such a difference. You can't wait to do stuff that you get to do. I get to go on vacation. I have to go to work. Like, the difference is huge. And so we try to just remind ourselves, we get to. And, and as far as following God, sometimes we get this have to. I have to do this. I am not allowed to do that. I'm supposed to do this. And what if our hearts said, I get to honor my God by obeying in this way. I get to share my faith with someone because Jesus took two chapters saying how important it is that we find him and help other people find him. He, he goes out of his way to say how urgent this is, that we got to look past the distractions of this life to eternal life. And we get to be a part of that. And it's huge. As we plant a new campus, we need a lot of people. And we get to be a part of what God's going to be doing in the hearts of a lot of people in and around Morris. It's not a have to. It's a get to. So join a team and be excited about it. Here at Manuka, people, some of you guys are just here because you like the early service. Totally, totally cool. You don't have to come to Morris. But uh, join a team and, and realize what you get to be a part of. Also with sharing our faith. Because, you know, the, the, the job of a Christ follower is to help other people follow him too. Disciples of Jesus are supposed to make disciples of Jesus. And that often feels like a have to. Because I'm scared to invite someone to my church because I don't know what they think about Christ or this church. Uh, you know, and I'm scared to talk about Jesus because I don't want to be that weirdo guy. And I don't want my neighbors to judge me or my coworkers to judge me or my, my teammates at school or, or whatever. And so like, we get nervous. But what if we said, I get to be a part of Jesus saving souls. You know, he's going to work. He's promised. He's called us. He wants to work through us. And so it's not a have to share our faith with people. It's a get to. And we all feel like, I don't know enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not a good enough example. What if they know that, you know, I'm still struggling with this? Or what if they ask me about this and I don't have the right answer? Like, we all struggle with those, like, we don't feel qualified. But we get to be a part of whatever he's going to do. So whatever you know, just share it with other people. Invite them to church. You know, uh, I always say, like, just invite people here, and we'll tell them about Jesus for you. Just invite them here. Promise them breakfast afterwards or something, and, and we'll, we'll worship with them. We'll tell them about Jesus, and you can feel like you are part of it, and, and you are part of it. So we all have our own world. So here, like, here's what the dad does. The dad never gave up hope for the homecoming. He was on the lookout. He runs to his son. He embraces his son. He gets him, the servants to get him the ring and, and the robe and the sandals, and they throw a huge party. And here's the question for us. Have you lost your hope for the homecoming? Is there someone in your life that you've kind of just given up, like the older brother? He's never coming back. You know, she's too far gone. He's too sinful. He's too anti-God or anti-church or she's too skeptical or, or, or I've blown it too many times with my own, you know, I, I don't have a good witness anymore with this person. Like, there's so many ways that we can give up on people, even if we think it's our own fault, and say, they're never coming home. They're never going to find Jesus. They're never going to put their faith in Jesus. Have you lost your hope for the homecoming? And to have hope for the homecoming, it really takes three things. First, you have to care about the lost. This is the difference between a, I do what I'm supposed to do versus I, I, I share my faith because I actually care that people are lost, that sinners go to hell, and only people saved by Jesus go to heaven. And that drives me to try to invite people to church, to try to tell them about Jesus, to try to love them like Jesus calls me to love them. It's not just a supposed to. It goes to my heart issue where it comes out of I care that people that don't know Jesus 
are doomed. The second is this. I believe it's never too late. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter how many times they've sworn off God or said they don't believe and they'll never believe or what they claim about religion or, or, or the relationship I've had, like no one is too far gone. We serve the God who saves the dead and brings them back to life. We serve a God who gives sight to the blind and he heals people. We serve a God who took Saul, who killed Christians, made him Paul, a missionary that started churches, wrote 13 books of the Bible, and has, has been maybe one of the greatest disciples that ever lived. Like, like, he shouldn't have been a Christian. He was probably too far gone, but God never gives up hope on anyone. So we shouldn't. We should never believe that it's too late for anyone. Thirdly, we should go after them. This is intentional. This is, I care about the lost. I don't care who you are, what you've done. It's never too late. So I'm going to be intentional about trying to reach people for Jesus. Intentionally invite them to church. Intentionally to invite them to a ministry that you're part of, CR or youth group or a home group that you join or whatever, that we invite them into our, our community and we invite them to follow Jesus with us. And we're intentional about that. Pastor Errol said this a couple weeks ago, and I thought it was so good. You're not responsible for the whole world, just your world. And that's like, ooh, oh, you know? <laughs> it's like, Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. Like, he offers forgiveness. You can't save anybody. But he says, I want to use you to reach your world. At our church, we talk about being real in the world. The idea that we want to live as Christ followers in a way that attracts people to Jesus and invites them along, that they would come home to find faith in Jesus. This is what he wants you to be a part of. You're not responsible for the whole world, but the people in your world, your family, your, your circle of influence at work or school, your neighbors and things like this, this is who he wants you to go after. And when we all scatter that way, we make an incredible impact. I also thought of this. God never gives up on us, thankfully, right? If I was God, I would have gave up on me. If I was God, I would have probably gave up on most of you. But God never gives up on us, so we shouldn't give up on anyone else. It's easy. Someone that you've had a fight with, someone that you've, you've prayed for for years, and you just kind of say, okay. And sometimes it happens slowly. Like, you don't mean to write them off. You just kind of stop thinking about them that way, stop praying for them, stop witnessing to them. Sometimes it's because of a, 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 like a definitive moment where you're just like, that's it. I'm done with her. I'm moving on to somebody else. And we give up hope for their homecoming. Not like the father in the story who's on the lookout constantly for the person who said, I wish you were dead. And he says, I can't wait till you come back because it's never too late. God never gives up on us. So we shouldn't give up on anyone else. I had a, my best friend growing up. We went to church together. We played all kinds of sports together. Went to school together. We, we were just great, great friends. And um, in high school, his, his family really fell apart. And he was angry at God. And he walked away from God. He walked away from church. And uh, for a few years, we would hang out and we would talk about church and God and the Bible. And he was angry and he was bitter and he was against God. And I'd pray for him because I was like, God, I want Robbie to come back to you. I could tell he's, he's struggling. Like he's, he's trying to act like he's living the good life, but he's miserable. I can tell. Every, and I, 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 we'd hang out and I, I'd invite him to church and I'd say, no, you know, I didn't want him to feel pressure. He kind of knew that I was like trying to honor God and I felt like he should too, but you know, uh, I didn't want to pressure him, but I didn't want to give up on him. I'd pray for him. I'd pray for him. We'd hang out and he'd, we'd talk and he'd stay the same. And then we ended up moving away. I, after uh, I got a, my first job, kind of moved out of town and we kind of fell out of touch. And I didn't mean to give up on him, 
But like I, I kind of quit praying for him because I kind of quit talking to him. And I'll never forget, it had been about two years since we had hung out. And I get a call from Robbie. And he says, I just got to tell you, and such and such happened in my life. It got me back to church. And it is changing my life. Like I've recommitted my life to God. And he had specific things about what he's doing and how he sees God at work. And he was like overjoyed with God loving him and working in his life. And I was like, I can't believe he even thought to tell me because I haven't talked to him about God in two years. I haven't prayed about him in like two years. I didn't mean to give up on him, but he just kind of left my radar from someone that I knew that needed Jesus in his life. I was so thrilled that he thought of me to call me and say, I just got to tell you, I came back to God. He's loving me. I am following him. It is changing my life. It's more meaningful than it ever was before growing up. And it was like the greatest news I had ever received. And so often we can just kind of fall out of hope for people that we know that don't know Jesus. Or maybe it's someone you never ever had on your radar. You know, so-and-so neighbor or coworker or teammate at school or whatever it is. You just never even thought about the fact that you should be going after them. You should be praying for them. You are the person that's called by God to take the gospel to them. And we need to get them on our radar or get them back on our radar and be intentional. Not pushy, not beating them up, not yelling at them every time we see them, but witnessing to them as best we can and praying for them often. Because that's what God's called us to do. And so um, if, if on your seat you got a card and a pen. And um, what we're doing as a church is we're doing a couple things. One, we're planting a new campus in Morris because we want to reach people and help them come home and find faith in Jesus. But even before we actually go to Morris, we're going to celebrate Easter all here together uh, at one campus, and then, we'll, and then we'll finally go to Morris. And so we want you to be intentional in, in the next four weeks praying for someone and inviting them to Easter. And if they don't want to come, that's between them and God. You don't need to sweat it. You don't need to feel rejected. But if they never hear about it, that's between you and God, okay? And so uh, on that seat, you'll see this um, piece of paper, and this is just an invite tool. So uh, over here, you're just identifying, Lord, please help whoever it is. I don't know if that's your mom, your coworker, your neighbor, your friend, someone that you know really well or someone that you only know a little bit. But if God's putting them on your heart, write their name down. If it's someone that you've never thought about praying for before or maybe it's someone that you've kind of given up hope for, who have you given up hope for the homecoming? Write their name down and make this your prayer request. There's a little cut mark so you can take it home and cut it. And the other half, you write their name here and you say, hey, I'd like to invite you to come to Easter. We've got three, so just, you know, circle the one you want. So let's say your friend's name is Victor. You keep this part, hang it up somewhere. I know people that have put this like on their mirrors in their bathroom or taped it to the um, steering wheel so that they see it when they drive. Just as a reminder to pray, the steering wheel doesn't work for me. I honk my horn too much and my paper would rip. But do whatever works for you. This is a reminder to pray for them. This is an invite to give them. And just say, hey, I wrote, I thought of you. I want to invite you. I'm going to the 1130 service or whatever service you're going to. Make it personal. And so put their name down, give them the invite, and be praying for them for the next four weeks. I guess it looks like that when, once you tear it. But uh, as you're thinking about that, I want to challenge you before you leave this room to write a name down on each side of the card and, and to commit that person to God that we get to bring those people before our Heavenly Father and say, would you speak to them? Would you call them home? I'm not giving up hope for this person. I care that they're lost. It's never too late, and I'm going after them. 
And as we pray about that for the next four weeks and make that invitation, we'll see what God does. We've got plenty of seats for people on Easter. We've got extra seats if we need them. And we're going to worship God together and celebrate the resurrection. And in the meantime, you can totally tell them about Jesus. But if you just invite them to church and just pray for them, we believe that when they come to church, it, it could be life-changing. You know, everybody believes at some point. And um, that day could be Easter. That day could be tomorrow when you hand on this card. We don't know what God will do, but we want to be his bringers of his good news. And so uh, here's what I want to do. I want to pray. And um, it, hopefully you've written somebody down, and, uh, or maybe it's a family that you want to bring that to. But I, I, I want to just pray, and I want you to pray for that person, whoever it is that you wrote down. And, and start now, and don't stop the next month. We've got four weeks until Easter, and pray for that person. And ask God to move in their hearts. Ask God if he would use you to move in their hearts. How about that? Let's say, God, would you use little old me? You know, I'm just me. But if you want to use me, I want to be faithful. I want to be hope. I want to be living hope for the homecoming for this person. So let's pray, and then we're going to wrap up. Heavenly Father, thank you in this story that we see your goodness your faithfulness, that you're on the lookout for people to come home, that you run to us, you embrace us when we don't deserve it, you call us your sons and daughters even though we know we don't deserve it. I pray that you would um, move in our hearts, that we would be grateful for your love and your, your uh, grace and your forgiveness, that we'd be moved by that. And God, I pray that you'd move in our hearts for the people that we know that don't yet know you. That as we approach Easter, as we start to launch a campus, I pray that you will bring to mind people that we need to be going after. Help us to be faithful in praying for them and help us to be faithful in inviting them to know you. Whether that's to come to a ministry that we're part of, a community group somewhere, Easter services, or just to tell them who you are because we love them so much. I pray that you help us to do that well. Help us to do that out of love. Help us to see that we get to be a part of what you're doing. We don't just have to do because you said so, but you choose to work through us. So God, we are unqualified and, and imperfect, but we are so grateful that you work through us. So Heavenly Father, right now, all the people, the names that we've written down, we just want to bring them before you, that you'd be mindful of them, that you would send your spirit to be working on their heart. God, we pray that over the next month they would come to put their faith in you and that we would celebrate their salvation together and we'd celebrate the fact that you used little old us to be a part of it. We pray that you'd move in their hearts, that they would come to church, that they would hear your truth, that they would be convinced that they need Jesus and that their life would be changed forever because of your love. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you need information about Morris, I'll see you at the table. Otherwise, we'll see you guys next week. Have a great one.